0: Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text from the Holy Gospel, these words from Luke 20. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son, and perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let's kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. This is our text your friends in Christ. Who killed Christ? That's the perennial question that's asked and answered at this time of the year it seems every year with charges and with countercharges as to who it was that really killed Jesus with arguments and then excuses given, and apologies made, and every group accused then exonerating themselves. Who killed Christ? Not us. Not me. Personally, I think there's something to be said about the answer that actor-director Mel Gibson gave a few years ago. This controversial movie, The Passion of the Christ, had just been released to the theaters, and he was being interviewed by someone on television who obviously had a slant that would like to have caught Mel Gibson in this idea of anti-Semiticism. And so he was asked whether or not he thought it was the Jews who killed Jesus, to which Gibson, with his sardonic wit, smiled and answered, Well, there weren't any Norwegians there now you can imagine the stir that that caused at the time but Gibson's answer was technically correct there weren't any Norwegians there and I don't say that of any personal ethnic bias and as far as can be determined in fact it's even likely that a fact that there were no Chinese there, no Mexicans there no Eskimos there, no Filipinos there either But while Gibson's answer is technically correct, it's not a complete answer, and he knew that, and that's why he hurried on to say, after he gave that initial reaction, he hastened to add that, well, yes, the Jews killed Jesus even more, even more. The guilt of killing Jesus rested with Mel Gibson. He put the blame on himself, rightly so, his sin, his guilt, according to Gibson, the sins of Mel Gibson killed the Christ, an answer to which Martin Luther himself would have added his das Volte got. Amen. Amen to that. The Jews, you see, are no more to blame, though they are to blame. They're no more to blame than Pontius Pilate. They're no more to blame than the rest of the Roman troops from wherever in the Roman Empire they had come. They're no more or less to blame than all the rest of us who might try to claim some degree of innocence because we're so far removed by a couple of thousand years and by tens of thousands of miles from the event that took place on that day when Jesus of Nazareth was killed. We're all to blame. We're all responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that it's somewhat easy to say that, isn't it? It's sort of easy to... To speak about a general guilt and blame that we all have. We're all responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. sort of takes the the personal edge off it, doesn't it? It takes the me out of it. It takes the I out of it. And it makes it into kind of a soupy kind of confession that's easy to swallow. Instead of a, a meaty one that has to be chewed and tasted before it's swallowed. After all. Who wants to identify so personally and individually with the wicked tenants in today's text? It's not at all a comfortable fit if we think of ourselves as being with those wicked tenants in today's text. Sinners, yes, but sinners like those wicked tenants in today's text who deserve to be thrown out of the vineyard? No, not us. Surely not us. That was the Jews. Surely not us. Now, there's no doubt that when Jesus first spoke that parable that he had the Jewish religious leaders of the day in mind. We know that. All you have to do is look at the text, and you can see very clearly at the end of the gospel reading where St. Luke himself says, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against him, and he had against them. But note well, to whom does Jesus actually speak the parable? As you read the text, to whom does he speak the parable? He's not speaking the parable to the scribes and the Pharisees in particular. Indeed, St. Luke says, and Jesus began to tell the people this parable. The people are told this parable. The people didn't really like what Jesus was saying about them either. About their lives, about their city, about their holy temple and about all that was going to come to it eventually you see the people didn't like being identified with the tenants in the parable either and just as the scribes perceived that the parable was about them so the people also perceived that the parable was about them too after all how did the people respond after Jesus concluded that the parable by saying that the owner of the vineyard was going to come and, quote, destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. The people, St. Luke says, who heard this parable responded by saying, Surely not! Surely not! Literally, in the Greek, me genoito, me genoito, let it never be, let it never happen, Lord. The only time in the Gospels where this unique phrase is used, and what's interesting is that its Hebrew counterpart suggests uh, an attitude of insincerity in what's being said. They're not sincere about what they're saying when they say, Let it never be, Lord. Surely not. It wasn't an expression, you see, of real regret and repentance over the fact that they had killed the son when he'd come into the vineyard. It was rather a fear and a grief being expressed over the destruction that was coming their way. The tears were not tears of repentance over having killed the son, but rather tears of fear that were being expressed over what was going to happen to them down the road, what they stood to lose, not in what they had done and killing the vineyard owner's beloved son. We're not like the religious leaders of that day, are we? We're not like the people to whom Jesus told this parable. We never think the way that they thought. We never do anything in the vineyard that would in any way show any disregard or such disrespect for the beloved son of the vineyard owner. We would never as they did in hearing about the impending sin-caused loss of their city or their homes or their livelihood, about anything that meant everything to them, allow our concerns about our homes, or about our livelihood, or about our families, or our wealth, or our health, or our national future, or any such thing, all those things that we all have worked so hard to attain, to put together, and to keep together in life, we never ever let all of those things so consume us that they would become of paramount importance to us over the sun, of the vineyard owner so much of a concern to us and consume us so much that we would have little or no time to even reflect upon and be penitent about our sins, except in a corporate general way, our sins and what they have done to kill the vineyard owner's beloved son. May it never be, Lord. That we would be like that we would never do what they did in rejecting or tuning out surely the words of the prophets that had been sent to them of old we would never with itching ears for something novel and new give ourselves over to the teachings of those who had strayed from the prophets and from the apostles and from the confessions and from the creeds of the church which are time-tested and have proven to be tried and true and to be sure we'd never allow the enticing demands of the secular world rob our children of those sacred settings and times where the vineyard owner's beloved son promises to to come and to make our children his heirs and to teach our children and to to bring them up and the fear and the admonition of the Lord may it never be that we would do that We would never, like the tenants in the vineyard, see the vineyard owner's son coming to us in common dress and in humble garb as being something for which we would have disdain and be able to show disrespect to him. Think on that. The vineyard owner's son, obviously in the parable today, didn't come to the vineyard with a mighty vanguard of an army at his side, which he may well have done, surrounded by guards coming in royal garb and and robes. No, he doesn't. Obviously, had he come that way, there's no way that they would have dared to speak against him, let alone kill him. No, he comes humbly. The vineyard owner's son comes to the tenants in such a gentle way, even on a donkey in such a humble manner even as he comes to us today so humbly vested in bread and wine the son came to the vineyard in such a, a vulnerable way that they perceived him to be dispensable and so they disposed of him we would never but oh yes, we have. We, like the tenants in the vineyard, have in one way or the other, look at your own life, look at our lives corporately, we have in one way or the other, considered the vineyard owner's beloved son to be somehow dispensable in our lives, dispensable to us as he comes to us in bread and in in wine. And we say, no, not needed, not that significant, not that important, perhaps not needed yet. I have other things to do. No time. Dispensable when he's gotten in the way of what we wanted to do or where we wanted to go or how we wanted to do it in life. Selectively dispensable to be sure because we want him around when we need his helping hand to change some of our common water into wine for whatever reason or to heal some sicknesses. Or to multiply some kneaded bread and fish, or to take care of a few nasty demons that are troubling our lives now and then, selectively disposable, selectively dispensable, because we want them around when things in our lives seem to be getting out of control. But otherwise, we prefer to think of ourselves as being the Lord of the vineyard, or at least our little portion of that vineyard. which then we would allow him access at our periodic bidding thus reversing the roles of the tenant with the vineyard owner's son how often we have prayed thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and we've really meant my will be done on earth until i get to heaven And so who are the tenants in the vineyard who killed the vineyard owner's son? Friends, it all comes down to this. We're all individually, individually as guilty as the tenants in the vineyard. Individually as guilty as the Jews in Jerusalem, as guilty as Pontius Pilate, as guilty as Mel Gibson, as guilty as any... And all who are responsible for the killing of the Christ, our sins, doing no less harm to him than the sins of any other who put him on that tree. What now will the vineyard owner do to those who are responsible for the death of his beloved son? Will he come to destroy us? May it never be, O oh Lord, we cry. And good news, dear friends, good news, it never, ever will be. It'll never be for us because of what Jesus says next in the parable when he, St. Luke, says, look directly at the people. And then he quotes the 118th Psalm, the Hosanna Psalm, that would be sung by the people as Jesus would enter into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday a part of which psalm says the stone which the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone you see the vineyard owners beloved son is the stone that the builders rejected the cornerstone the first stone that's set in a new structure the indispensable stone that's there upon which everything else in the structure is built upon which all other stones in the structure you and me and all the rest of us must indeed rest The indispensable cornerstone, the stone upon which that structure has to be built if it's going to endure, reject the cornerstone and the whole structure will collapse even as did Jerusalem and its temple only 30 years after it rejected the Christ. Jesus, the stone which the builders rejected, Jesus, the cornerstone, called that cornerstone by the apostles of our Lord six different times in the New Testament. And then to end this parable jesus adds these interesting words and he says everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush him thank god thank god that you and i have been led by the spirit of god to stumble over christ and him crucified thank god that we who like the tenants of the vineyard have all too often thought that we could step over Christ or step on Christ, have indeed stumbled over him. Thank God that those of us who have so often thought that we count him a bit dispensable in our lives or at least controllable in our lives have been broken to pieces by God's word of law and have been laid flat on our backs by the weight of our sins, flat on our backs at the foot of the cross, where we look up from where we're lying and we see that the cross upon which we belong is already occupied not empty but occupied occupied by the one who was sent by the vineyard owner himself the vineyard owners beloved son occupied by the one who bent himself then down low in our humanity in order that he might take what we are and make it himself the full weight of our sins being upon him to be made sin for us, St. Paul says, occupied by the one who placed himself where we deserve to be. You see the very stone which will at times end indeed crush all who reject him is that cornerstone upon which is built Christ's Church and your life not only now but for the rest of eternity and speaking of eternity one final point of the parable it's most interesting that jesus began the parable by saying a man planted a vineyard and he let it out he rented it you see he leased it two tenants and then he went to another country for a time interesting statements because to let something out to rent something to lease it for a, for a short term it has a short term nature to it It has a temporary nature to it it's meant not for the long term but for the short term there's going to be a change in tenants in time that's being let out to them it's being rented to them contrast that to the end of the parable where jesus speaking of those final occupants of the vineyard says that the owner of the vineyard will come and destroy the tenants And note well then these words, and he will give the vineyard to others. Not to other tenants, but to others. And he will give it to them. He doesn't let it out to others. He doesn't rent it to others. He doesn't lease it to others. He gives it to others. And those others are his church. It's you and me Jesus says elsewhere it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom it's not something that you pay anything to get not something that you pay anything to keep you can't buy it, you can't rent it, you can't lease it, you can't make payments on it of any kind the owner of the vineyard has already bought it for you, purchasing it with the precious blood of his only begotten and his most beloved Son. And now he gives the vineyard, the kingdom to you. How? Through scriptural word, through baptismal waters, through sacramental bread and wine, in which is the very body and blood of his Son. He gives it to you. You see, we're not tenants. We're not tenants anymore. In Christ we've been made the vineyard owners, daughters, and sons. We're heirs of his kingdom. So treasure the gift. In the name of the giver, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.